Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Greetings, hello everybody. Um, Welcome to this uh, event. My name is Mike Savage. I'm Professor of Sociology here at the LSE and I lead some research in the International Inequalities Institute around the theme of tax justice, wealth and elites. And this event fits squarely within that agenda. I'm really, really, really thrilled about the event tonight. I've chaired many events uh, in recent years, but this is a really terrific occasion. I'm here to welcome Faiza Shaheen, Kim McIntosh, Gary Young and Gary Stevenson. We have a a, a full sold-out audience here and we have many more people online. So let me introduce the speakers, um, beginning with Faiza Shaheen, who is, um, I guess Faiza first came to prominence when she led the think tank class between 2016 and 2020. This was an amazing achievement because the trade union movement is not renowned for being able to win the war of ideas and to take ideas and communicate. And when the theme of class was the, was the centre of the think tank, it was quite a challenge to get that term to be used in a way which is not going to be divisive and people disagreeing with you about what you meant by class. But Pfizer managed to do it with incredible skill, drawing a huge number of uh, communities and audiences into her work. Uh, and then um, in 2020, she went to work in New York, <coughs> where she is the programme lead on inequality and exclusion at the Pathfinders for Peaceful, Just and Inclusive Societies at the Centre on International Cooperation. There's a bit of a mouthful there. Um, <coughs> doing fantastically important work reflecting upon how you can build progressive governments across the globe. And it's a fantastic compliment to the work she was doing in the UK before. Also really, really pleased that she has, during recent years, been very active and engaged with the work we're doing in the LSE. She's a visiting professor here. Uh, and has always been someone to put a hand up and teach and collaborate and be very, very supportive of what we'll be trying to do. So it's, it's really fantastic to welcome Pfizer here. As we know, we are here to launch her book, Know, know Your Place, um, and she will have 20 minutes to speak. And then on to Gary Young, who needs very little introduction here. Gary is one of the foremost journalists, critical journalists in the UK. Um, works has written extensively for The Guardian and other papers over the years. He's now a professor of sociology at the University of Manchester and he also has a book out, Dispatches from the, the Diaspora, and I believe he'll also be signing that after this event. And then after uh, Gary comes Kim McIntosh, who is a writer and a researcher, has written for a number of publications including The Guardian, The Washington Post, The Independent, and she has a book out too. Black Girl No Magic. I've been lucky enough to read an advanced copy of it, and there's a wonderful discussion about um, middle-class safari, what it is to be a black working-class woman uh, engaging in middle-class with Britain. So it's a really going to be a great book. And finally, Gary Stevenson, who is an inequality economist and former trader, and as you will hear, he's an LSE alumni, and he has been sharing some of his experiences about the LSE. He now runs a YouTube and a social media campaign under the name Gary's Economics, explaining in accessible language the importance of reducing wealth inequality. He's also a member of Patriotic Millionaires. So as you can see, it's a fantastic panel. To be honest, it's a shame we've only got an hour and a half. But 
They have, they have five talks for 20 minutes, and then they have three talks for 10 minutes to leave half an hour for questions. So with no further ado, let me pass on to Pfizer. super excited about being on this panel with uh, Gary and uh, the other Gary Young, Gary Stevenson, Kim uh, McIntosh and Mike Savage who I reached out to and asked if they would think about doing this and they all said yes which you know is such a such a, a blessing thank you and um, so lucky to have this talk today with so many legends and so I'm going to keep this short because I really want us to get into and um, what we're here to discuss, which is essentially that this country is failing so many people. It's failing us really dramatically in terms of opportunities. It's failing the working class and it's failing society as a whole. <clears throat> um, I start this book uh, with a personal story and there's a lot of personal stories in there because I wanted to make it engaging. Um, and the personal story is about when I was four years old and I was in the bathroom in the, in the bar and my mum came running into the room and she just seemed really excited about something. And she looked at me and she said, Pfizer, one day you're gonna to go to the best university in the world. You're gonna to go to Oxford. And I kind of didn't know what this meant. Um, but she said it to me and she was really excited. It's like she had an epiphany or something. And um, yeah, lo and behold, even though it wasn't probable I would go there, um, lo and behold, many years later, I was there. The problem is, is that I actually hated this story. Um, I've come to hate this story because it's a classic story we're told about how people make it. It's all about some sweet fairy tale. It's all about, wow, this girl must have worked really hard to get there. It takes out everything in between. It takes out the fact that we had to go on benefits. And so the welfare state supported me and my family. It takes out the fact that I had incredibly inspiring teachers that looked out for me. Um, it takes out what had happened um, in various different ways in our lives in terms of um, what we'd had to do with housing and bills and the rest of it. It takes out the struggle and it takes out public sector and it takes out luck, which is the biggest deciding factor in all of our lives. Um, and the book is punctured with statistics um, about that luck. The fact that two thirds of where you're likely to end up in the global hierarchy is defined by, not how hard you work, the country you were born in. Did any of us have a say about the country we were born in? Do most people around the world have a say about where they have their child? No, and yet it is the single most defining factor in terms of where you end up. But the problem of social mobility is much, much deeper than that. And look, I've been working on inequality for many years and really looking at, more from an economic standpoint, looking at how this wealth um, divide has been growing and growing, not just here, but amongst many countries around the world. And, you know, all these statistics, I was just looking at the, the rich list, um, which I use in the book as well, that the richest 50 families in the UK now have more wealth than the bottom half of the UK population. Um, you know, statistics like since the first rich list, which was published in 1989, wealth inequality has been on the rise to the extent that in 1989, a rich person had 6,000 times what the average person had. Today, it is 18,000 times what the average person has. 
Now, I've been looking at these stats and I can tell you these stats and they are shocking, especially when you put them alongside the fact that so many people are using food banks and struggling to pay their bills, not making it, finding it hard to make ends meet. But the thing is, is that I've been looking at these stats, working on these issues, knowing that it hurts the economy, it hurts society, knowing that the evidence is gathering. And at the same time, we haven't been seeing the action we would expect. This is huge and rising levels of inequality. It's completely unacceptable. Most people are upset about it. Not just here, as I've said, but many countries that I've been working in around the world and when I was in the US as well. So why are we not seeing any action on this inequality? And that is what the heart of this book is about. It is about my frustration about a story that pervades our thinking that we're socialized into that dramatically and quite clearly justifies these inequalities. And it is that story of social mobility. It's the idea that as long as a country, in a country you can go from being at the bottom to the top of society, then that country is doing okay. It doesn't matter how bad these inequalities are, as long as some, you can get rich too. And that story has failed on its own terms. Um, of course, you know, the stats come out every year, you know, top jobs still dominated by people that went to private school. Um, that, um, you know, and it's also failed in terms of how it works. It places the blame and it places the stress on the individual to make society work from them, rather than for society to work for us. Um, and, it, and it does also, and this is the, the kind of deeper point here, it creates a hierarchy. Because when you tell a story of getting to the top, you create a top, you create a hierarchy. All the imagery around social mobility, you know, whether it's the stairs or the ladder or the pyramid, it's this idea of at the bottom and at the top. And guess what kind of jobs are at the bottom? Some of the most important jobs in society, like care workers. What kind of jobs are at the top? Some of the jobs that are hurting society most, like people in hedge funds managers, and we'll, we'll hear more about that. You know, some of the top paying jobs, property developers, and we've got a housing crisis. That is the jobs that we look up to as making it in society. Even Oxford, and I talk about this a lot in the book, which was a terrible place, um, you know, with all of its elitism, that is the idea of making it in society. And how many people does that give room to? It creates the idea of exceptions. So the odd exception that can break through and get to the top, even though that the top isn't even necessarily helpful for society, because there's not that much space at the top. I had this, um, I was giving a lecture, and this is also, you know, I'm always asked to go back to my old schools and, you know, inspire the kids, and I just, it really kind of irks me, but um, there was, I was talking to them about this idea that exceptions prove the rules, and we need to change the rules. The biggest dream you can have is not just for yourself, it's for wider society. And this woman got really upset, and she said, we can all be exceptions. <laughs> Obviously not. Statistically, it's just not possible. But how have we created a, st a story of success, not just for the individual, but for society, that only allows a few people to feel successful? That's an utter failure. That's, what kind of vision is that? And I just wanna play a little game with you guys about how much this thinking pervades. And it's a social mobility experiment that has been going on for decades, my whole life. Every prime minister we've had has promised us something like this. Um, and 
basically, it's been a complete failure. And the reason I'm going out with this book and talking to people is to say, we need to have a different vision of society. We need to have a different vision of success. So I'm going to read out some quotes from prime ministers from the last 40 years, and you guys can guess who it is. I'm sorry, I know that I did this last week, so some of you might know who came last week. Um, okay. We will transform Britain into an aspiration nation with high-paying jobs, safe streets, and where everyone everywhere has the opportunities they deserve. Any ideas who that is? Liz Trust. She did a great job, didn't she? And this is what I mean. So in the book, I cover this. The amount of politicians that say this stuff and meanwhile are dismantling our education system, are taking money out of our public sector, um, let me read you another one. I want Britain to be the world's great meritocracy, a country where everyone has a fair chance to go as far as their talent and their hard work will allow. Any ideas? You can just shout it out. It could be, couldn't it? That's Theresa May. And here's one more. This is, I mean, you can, I, I found so many. It's like you could, I couldn't tell who it was. Let us affirm that in return for opportunity for all, that we expect and demand responsibility for all, to learn English, to contribute to and respect the culture we have built together. No, it's Brown. Yeah. Gordon Brown. Yeah. Yeah, I know, I know. Every time I read that, people are like, what? <laughs> yeah. But this is it. I mean, this is, and the importance of undoing this story is really central. Because if we don't get through this, if people don't understand that it's not all about them, that it is about luck, that it is about society, we are not going to have the support for the sorts of policies we need, whether it's the welfare state, um, whether it's more investment in education, whether it's doing something about the obscene privileges of going to private school, unless people understand that this idea of as long as one person can make it, it's okay, Unless they refute that, we're just not going to get the support for the type of policy change that we need. Um, I want to like delve into a little bit deeper into one of the chapters that where I look at the rich list and look at the wealth, um, uh, the rich list, the Sunday Times rich list, and look at what jobs, how well, essentially, where are people making their money? Um, I'm just going to read you the the top five things that stood out. One was property development. Second was finance and hedge funds. Um, third was construction, fourth was food, hospitality, food and hospitality um, and retail, and fifth was music. Now, in the book I go into each of those sectors. These are sectors notorious for either hurting society or paying people very low wages. So again, this point about when you delve into what it takes to be rich in this country, and so, so this is an example of this construction company, this guy that owns this construction company that has got very rich, and he actually was one of the few that started off as a bricklayer. But now he, his company basically creates a lot of very expensive luxury housing. Um, and actually, this same guy has given a lot of money to the Conservative Party and lobbies against um, more council housing. So in order to make it, too often, in order to make it to those kind of dizzying heights of wealth, you kind of have to give up on inequality. A lot of those jobs are making inequality worse. Um, 
I want to read a section from the book, just getting into why this is um, more than just economics or more about the way the economy is functioning. Um, when I worked at class, we did a lot of uh, research around um, class and race in this country, born out of frustration of a narrative of the white working class, when we know that the working class is multi-ethnic, um, an attempt to really divide this group. And when we did that research, um, we found that there were so many similar experiences across working class groups in this country, regardless of race and often regardless of what region they live in. Um, of course, there were some more intense housing issues in London, but in general, there was, when we interviewed people, they were saying very similar things. Um, and one of the things that was most striking about it was the level of prejudice they feel. Um, and I want to read something from um, a, a documentary that I worked on and um, just to kind of give you a sense of how deep this goes, that when you create this hierarchy with it, you need a hierarchy of um, humans. You need a hierarchy of where people place themselves. Um, otherwise, you can't justify those inequalities. Um, I can't hold this and read this at the same time and try. In 2017, I agreed to help create a TV show with a documentary company on social mobility. The idea was that we would put some kids from different backgrounds into real work, life work situations, running magazines and estate agents and making chocolate. Their interactions and confidence in the workplace would illuminate the class differences and demonstrate the vast gaps between the upper, middle and working classes. I had a few difficult conversations with the director of the show as well as the director of the production company, both of whom were unsurprisingly privately educated white men, as was the person who had commissioned the show from Channel 4. The irony that a show on social mobility was put together by a few of the beneficiaries of the system was not lost on me. They seemed intent on filming class cliches, playing into ideas of aspiration that I wholly disagree with, and try, trying to give me, um, trying to get me to say that today's inequalities could be solved simply by better work experience. They told me the show was apolitical, which, in my experience, is code for saying we don't want to say anything that upsets the rich. In the end, my role became very minimal because I didn't want to legitimate, legitimize an approach to social mobility that I disagreed with. But there is one part of the project that stays with me. During the filming of the trial, we took a group of 10 kids aged from about 8 to 12 years old, all from different parts of the country, and brought them together in London. They were very obviously from different class backgrounds, and they wore it on their sleeves. They were asked to run a restaurant, to decide among themselves what roles they would pay, play, from the manager to waiters to dish cleaners. Very quickly, some of the more affluent kids declared that they should be manager. As they were fighting over who would be the boss, one of the working class kids went straight to start washing the dishes. Asked why, he simply replied, because this is the type of job I do. It was heartbreaking. This child, not more than 10 years old, had already internalized the class system. He put himself at the bottom of the social hierarchy. And in the book, I go through a number of different experiments that have been done around the world about the strength of how that class system works and the levels of confidence it gives people and how it puts people and keeps people in their place. 
And um, we're going to get more into that into this discussion now, but I do want to say that there's a big chunk of the book on what we can do about this. If we're going to dump this as a vision for society, if we're going to dump the idea of like as long as one person makes it, or the idea of social mobility as the ultimate litmus test, then what can we replace it with? And that vision has to be, and we learned this from COVID, it has to be that we should have much better wages for those at the bottom, that we should make sure that we have the respect and dignity of people that are washing the dishes, that are doing the care work, that are keeping the wills on society, that are doing the things that make our society work. But there's nothing wrong and this is the thing, right? It's about checking our own snobbery. There is nothing wrong with being an electrician or a plumber or a car mechanic like my dad was. In fact, those things can be hugely helpful. Someone, someone had done a really stupid tweet about me, as they do, um, and someone replied saying, PP at Oxford sounds like her dad was much more helpful. And I was like, yeah, that's the point. That's the point of the book. Read it, right? And like, <laughs> that is the point. And we have. We have to change that mindset, and there's a bunch of policies in the book that go into, but that's the fundamental thing that will change our relationship with each other in terms of how much we empathize with each other, how much we respect each other, and so that we can then internalize that. That kid doesn't think that the Washington dishes is where they would be. It's just wherever the people were, and any of those kids could be washing those dishes, and they wouldn't feel bad about it. Thank you. Gary Young. Um, thank you, Pfizer. Um, looks like you're going to be bombarded with personal stories uh, for the uh, evening. But um, if, like uh, Pfizer's, they're compelling, then, uh, and I hope uh, these are, then so be it. So, one of my earliest memories is dancing on my mum's feet in my living room to Young, Gifted and Black. It was the early 70s, the economy was in the tank, racism was on the rise, and my mum would say, look, they're singing our song. And she was trying hard as the single mother of three kids in Stevenage to imagine a world that might be possible for her children that she couldn't see, but that she hoped for. Now, in all sorts of ways, my story, much like Pfizer's, could be, could be employed, could be instrumentalized as one of those fairy tale stories. Uh, uh, council house, dad left when I was 15 months old, I was the youngest. My mother uh, was a nocturnal epileptic who died when I was 19 in an overwhelmingly white and working class town. And there are all sorts of reasons that it's important, I think, to understand why people like the story of a person who starts off there and ends up with a column in The Guardian or as a professor at the University of Manchester. And they're not all crazy, right? They like them because it's a really reassuring feeling to think that maybe it was your effort 
that your effort counts for something, that working at things counts for something. I've got two kids, and to think that, you know, what do I tell them? <laughs> you can work, you can not work, basically. You know, you were born pretty well off, and you'll probably be all right. Like, I did never saw that addition of Super Nanny. Like, that's not the way it works. You, you want for your children, you want to, for them to imagine a better future, and you want uh, for them uh, uh, to, to work for it. And we want to know that it matters what we do. And in all sorts of ways, of course, it does matter what we do. And it would be a terrible, terrible message to put out to young children, no, it doesn't, it just really, it really doesn't matter. But the way that that conversation is framed has to go beyond the personal, because what it does when you just say, well, it matters what you do, is you elevate the individual over the institution, you, you elevate the personal over the systemic, and you create a counter-narrative that says, well, if that person did really well because they worked hard, then that person must be really lazy. And that's why they are where they are. Now, explaining those things, explaining systemic and institutional things is very, very difficult, particularly uh, uh, to children and to people who don't want to understand. I remember when I lived in Chicago, uh, walking my son to his daycare, and, he, and one day he said, Daddy, I don't want to go that way. And I said, why not? And he said, because the police keep stopping black boys when we go that way. And I didn't even know that he had seen that, but he was right, that, that there was a corner where they did a lot of stop and searches. And I said to him, this was the quickest way to get to the school, and, you know, once again, not seen on Super Nanny. I was like, we'll be all right, we'll be all right. And he says, well, well, why will we be here? You know, why? And I said, we haven't done anything. We'll be fine. And he said, but what have they done? And I said, you know what, son? Let's go the other way. You're right. Let's go the other way. Because to explain to him, you know what? I don't know what they've done. They probably did nothing. That is, <laughs> that is the system that we live in, where they look at you and they decide what you might do, was too hard. And. And so there is this belief then that, okay, so if the way that you got here was through your hard work, then it must be, or your mum's uh, imagination and effort, then these people must have bad parents. They must be from dysfunctional families. They must be lazy. They mustn't have tried hard enough. They deserve it. You deserve what you got, and that means that they deserve what they got. And I recall being interviewed for a uh, fellowship for the Washington Post. And Ben Bradley, the editor of the Washington Post who broke the Watergate scandal, he was interviewing me and he said, I don't understand. I got you down for a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, what did your parents do? And I said, well, you know, he said, what did your dad do? And I said, that wasn't very relevant because my dad left when I was one. He said, what about your mom? And I said, well, she was a teacher. And he picked up immediately on the tents. And he said, was a teacher? Was a teacher? And I said, yes, yeah, she died. When did she die? When I was 19. So from 19, you were on your own, right? And Ben Bradley had me down as Oliver Twist. <laughs> Oliver Twist, looking for a job in the Washington Post. But the truth is, I was not 
on my own. There were two very important things that made me possible. Um, three, if you count my effort, but lots of people tried. So two important things. One was the state. Stevenage was created the same year as the NHS with the same understanding, 100% council housing. And what that meant was that when I grew up, there were no, where I grew up, there were no sink schools, there were no sink areas. You couldn't tell anything about anyone from where they lived. I had a hernia when I was eight. I went to hospital, had surgery, and then I was fine. My mother, as I said, was a nocturnal epileptic. She got the treatment that she needed. You only have to spend a few months in America to understand the relationship between healthcare and social mobility. There were free school meals. There was the, um, uh, the top-ups that my mum would get because she was uh, a single parent. There was the French that I did at night school and I ended up studying French and Russian that was free. If you wanted to do it and you were under 18 or you earned below a certain level, you could go to night school and you could do, uh, you could do what you want. I went to university and it was paid. I didn't have any loans. I didn't pay any fees. Um, it didn't cost me a penny. So there was the state. But then the other thing was also that there was the street and there was the struggle. That when I was 12, the uh, areas of uh, Britain's cities went up in flames in 81, and then again in 85. And after 85, the Guardian said, you know, or the Scott Trust that owns the Guardian said, we should create a bursary scheme. We're writing about black people. We don't have any black people in any of the offices. We should, we should create a bursary scheme. It was the second year of that bursary scheme. That was the scheme that I went on by which, through which I became a journalist. 1999, I got my first column. Now, columnists are more likely to be private school educated and Oxbridge educated than senior judges and lords. That's how posh columnists are. I got my <laughs> column in 1999. That was the year the McPherson report came out. That was the year Yasmin Alibi Brown got her column. That was the year that Steve McQueen won the Turner Prize. The year before Chris Affini won the Turner Prize. The year after Zadie Smith's book came out, uh, White Teeth. Now, all of those things, none of those things, one might say, are directly causal, but they are certainly contextual. But the people who came out, and, and, and so they're related to the people who came out onto the streets. They didn't come out for me. I don't think there was anybody chanting, we need more black columnists. <laughs> we need more best-selling authors. That's not how it happened, but they came out, and so most of them did not benefit. But between them and the state, they made my trajectory possible. There is no amount of moxie or chutzpah or or resilience or graft that would have got me there on my own. Ben Bradley was wrong. I didn't do it. I wasn't on my own. 
There were a large number of people who didn't know me but were paying for me already. And this is why Pfizer's book is so important, because we have to pay this stuff forward. Mobility that is individual is nice for the individual. But it's not social mobility, it's personal mobility. It is all very well having a single person breaking through the glass ceiling, but if everybody else is stuck in the basement and lifts have been disabled, it's not much use for anybody else. So, of course, and here I am, I danced on my mother's feet as she imagined a world that might be possible. But I also danced here on other people's dreams who dreamed of a world where I might be possible even though, even though they didn't know me. And that's the world that I think we have to dream of. Thank you. Thanks so much, Gary. Now on to Kim. So I have some slides. So I just wanted to check if they are loaded. Anyone? If not, I can just talk. I don't have to have them. I'll give it one second. Let's just go. So, hi everyone, thank you so much for having me. I'm Kim and I am also going to start with a personal story. <laughs> so I'm actually going to start with a story from Pfizer's book before moving into my own story. So, in Pfizer's book, which is amazing by the way, I can't wait for everyone, oh, slides. <laughs> I can't wait for everyone to read it, but there's a section on race and class and Pfizer tells the story of a famous Hollywood director called Antoine Fuqua. So I don't know anything about film, but I think he's a pretty big deal. And Pfizer asks him what he sees as the key to his success. And instead of talking about, you know, hard work, grit, perseverance, um, my inspirational parents, he says, I benefited from a school lottery. And in that school lottery, it took me from my low-income area to a much better resource school. And that is the most important intervention that has led to all of the outcomes that I have now. And something similar happened to me when I was seven. So I got a scholarship to a private school in the countryside, and I was taken from a kind of a mid-rise um, tower block on a council estate, a single, living with a single mum, etc., to a very well-resourced posh school in the countryside. And that is the most significant intervention in my life because not only did it give me access to economic capital, but it also gave me access to social and cultural capital. So a lot of the tastes and behaviours that I have, my accent, I picked up all through osmosis and I've been benefiting ever since from those things, particularly in professional work environments. And they often get misread as merit when, yeah, I mean, it's complete chance. It has nothing to do with my ability at all. And so I want to spend the next nine minutes or so talking about why my personal story is not the solution to structural racism in this country and the inequalities that stem from it. Um, so before I move on to the serious part, um, quick audience participation, <coughs> the only bit I will do, 
Um, but here are two pictures. Which one of these do you think is a photo of me with my friends from uh, private school? Does anyone want to give it, give it a guess? <laughs> Anybody? Which one do you think it is? Yeah, it's the one with all the white people in it. Yeah. So, class is racialized in Britain. We'll get to how that pans out. So, a few years ago, um, I got into a Twitter argument with someone. Uh, it was a black man who wouldn't accept some evidence that we'd found from a report that we did when I was at the Reading Trust. So it was with the Women's Budget Group, and it found that austerity measures from 2010 had had a disproportionate impact on low-income black and Asian women. And the reason he said it was hard to believe is because he went to a grammar school, and he had done well, and he didn't feel that these statistics matched up to his own experience. And so I've got some examples from Pfizer's book here of the chances that you will grow up poor if you're black, if you're white British um, and didn't go to a private school, if you're white British and you did go to a private school. You may notice that a lot of the private school data for white British people is unavailable. Um, that's probably because, you know, only 7% of people in this country go to a private school at all. So there we are. But we can see these disproportionalities, but he couldn't fathom that they were true. And of course, not all people in the UK who are black got on a low income, but proportionally more black people um, are on a low income in Britain than white people. My notes don't want to behave. Okay, they're behaving now. Um, but I think what the outcome of this often is, is that when we should be talking about how racism and how classism, how poverty, how inequality, and how social policy decisions made by government affect people's outcomes, whether that's in education, whether that's in the labour market, we get stuck in a loop talking about interpersonal grievances and individual experiences. And this is not helpful for a number of reasons. So as has been alluded to, racism is much bigger than individuals. It's baked into our institutions and the way that um, public services are delivered as well. So something else that Pfizer um, writes about in her book is how racist beliefs like eugenics and race science um, and not as fringe as we would like to think. Um, she also had to do an interview with Toby Young, I mean a room with Toby Young, so if we could all just take a moment to think about what that must have been like and to really feel for Pfizer during that uh, moment, because that sounds like hell on earth. Uh, <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, these beliefs um, don't stay in people's heads, and so there was some research done late last year, I think December 2022, by the Reframing Race Project, which looked at kind of beliefs about race and racism in Britain. And it was a survey of over 20,000 people in England and Scotland. And what they found was quite shocking beliefs. So 40% of people that they surveyed believed that some races are born harder working than others. They also found that one in five people they surveyed um, think some races are more intelligent than others. So these are startlingly high proportions, but this also isn't, um, this is new research, but it builds on previous research that done by Natsen, which found very, um, very similar um, proportions of people. And we know that these ideas don't stay in people's heads. If this is what you believe about hard work and intelligence, and you get a CV, and you think the name might sound South Asian or black, 
what is the probability that you're going to give that person a fair shot? And so there's loads of research on this, and I'm sure lots of people in this room will be aware of it. So Anthony Heath, who is like a massive legend, has done lots of research doing CV studies, and in the latest iteration of that, um, his team found that there's consistent discrimination against particular ethnic minority groups in the labour market. And this was particularly true for Black Britons and um, people of Pakistani heritage as well, who have faced strong discrimination in the labour market at levels of unchanged since the late 1960s and 1970s. But I'm going to do a quick, another story, a quick aside, about why we need to get this research out to people, kind of outside of rooms like this, and to as wide an audience as we possibly can. So, I'm on TikTok. I love TikTok. Um, if you don't have it, I would maybe not get it. It's super addictive. I'm completely addicted to it. But I was on there recently, and I saw a video, and it's this woman saying that she was not getting contacted by any recruiters, so she changed her name to her middle name, which is a white-sounding name, and she removed her photo from LinkedIn. And then suddenly, she was getting um, engagement from recruiters, but obviously none of her qualifications had changed. She was literally the same person. Um, so then I did another video that was like, oh, there's this research, long-standing research by these academics, that proves that this isn't just you, this is actually um, a structural problem. And then she said that knowing it's a thing makes her feel validated. And so building on what Pfizer was saying earlier, it isn't just that we need to communicate this to say policymakers, because obviously we need social change, we need policy change, but people also internalize this and think that it's their own individual failure rather than structural, institutional and state failure. And if we don't get that message out there, and we don't make the argument, then we have a vacuum, and that vacuum is often weaponized in bad faith by commentators and politicians to distract attention away from policy solutions that would require investment in social infrastructure and would be a challenge to power relations. And we see that a lot with um, kind of lazy use of culture and aspiration to account for what is actually racism and classism in schools, in universities, and in the labour market. So, sorry, I've got another story, but it's my last story. So, my mum's side of the family um, have like quite a typical story of moving to the UK. So, my grand moved in 1960 as part of the Windrush generation. We're from a rural farming family, and research shows that black people who moved during that time from the Caribbean were more likely to do blue-collar work or farming work and then move to the UK. So in contrast to that, people who moved from predominantly West African countries in the 1960s to the 1990s um, were more likely to be um, in middle-class or professional occupations in their home country and moved to the UK to study. But what the research has found is that both generations of both groups have failed to get jobs that match their skills, even for the generation that was raised in Britain. Um, but what we get when we have this vacuum is that instead of a nuanced acknowledgement of 
the confluence of different factors that affect people's outcomes, so histories of migration and colonialism, the social class of people when they were in their home country, the time that people arrived and the context that they moved into in the UK, you know, were there racial discrimination laws in place or were they the generation that had to fight and take to the streets to make those laws come into place? And instead, what we get is often lazy references to a deficient culture or blame on the family structures that people have come from, often nearly always blaming single mothers for a myriad of social issues. So in his recent book, uh, The Culture Trap, um, there's an assistant professor of sociology, Darren Wallace, and he highlights how um, blaming culture is often a fallacy. So he does research in a school in New York and a school in London, um, kind of looking at the narratives around black Caribbean students. And what he found was that the teachers in New York attributed um, cultural traits that were positive to Caribbean students. So saying they were from well-disciplined, hard-working families, and that's why they did well in New York schools. In contrast, in the London school, he found the complete opposite, that cultural traits um, were used to explain away <coughs> um, poor outcomes, particularly for black Caribbean boys, and led to low expectations. But ultimately, we're talking about, in theory, the same culture, which shows the limits of that discourse. And what we're often seeing now is that the same rhetoric is being used to talk about the outcomes of white boys on free school meals or white working class boys. So instead of having to have a conversation about poverty, about inequality, about our spending on social security, on social housing, on public services, wealth distribution, programs in schools and workplaces, we're able to then just blame families and individuals instead. And we can use that as an excuse to not have to take any action. And as a bonus, you can also talk about woke culture, have a go at diversity, do the whole thing. And so this is an example here from Matt Goodwin, for people who know, they know. <laughs> but he's talking here about how um, poor white working class communities, um, the reason boys aren't doing well is because of their far higher rates of family breakdown and addiction, joblessness, and mental and physical health problems. There's no references to why um, people may have mental or physical health problems or addiction issues which are linked to poverty rates often. Um, but what you're able to do with this is not only use black African families, who are much more likely to have come from middle-class professions anyway in their home country, to white working-class boys in the UK, but then offer nothing to support that group, whilst also being able to have a go um, at other groups at the same time, but doing nothing to challenge power structures. So what can we do about all of that? Um, so we need to challenge these narratives, and as Pfizer mentioned, there's an amazing report that Class did, um, which is um, the think tank that Pfizer used to head up, um, which looks at you know, what kind of narratives can we use to fight back against this weaponization of race and class. And what they found worked was really emphasizing our shared material interests and conditions. So that isn't pretending that racism doesn't exist um, and doesn't cause harm and discrimination isn't real, but just a way of kind of building support to move us away from pitting um, race and class in opposition and instead reorienting our focus on falling living standards, which is affecting all of us. And then we also need to look and build support for social policies that have been discussed already by members of the panel. And I think 
um, better communication is a really key way to build that support. So to end, I wanted to just kind of kind of give some appreciation and gratitude to the to the policies and the people that actually have led to my position in society at this time, which has nothing to do with my perseverance or grit or particularly special talents, but is actually that I had a healthy and secure relationship with my primary caregiver, my mother, um, that I lived in social housing my entire life in security of tenure, that I benefited <coughs> from working tax credits, I got education maintenance allowance, I got a maintenance grant to go to university, I got a scholarship to go to Manchester University, I got a bursary from the London School of Economics for people on low incomes, and a big thanks, as Gary said, to the predominantly black and brown activists and organisers that came before me, that took to the streets, took to the courts and made my life possible, and of course, the biggest thing of all, which is luck. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kim. Now on to, to Gary, Gary Stevenson. One, two. Okay, social mobility. Social mobility. When I was a little boy, growing up in the mean streets of East London, not far from where Pfizer grew up, I was obsessed with social mobility. Well, I wasn't really. I was, um, I was obsessed with, with getting rich. Like, like all kids in East London, I was obsessed with getting rich. I want to get rich. I want to get rich, I want to get rich, I want to get rich. But if you're poor and you want to get rich, that's, that's social mobility, right? So um, that's what I thought about all the time, social mobility. When I was a bit older, I became a teenage boy, still obsessed with, um, with social mobility. I want to get rich, I want to get rich, I want to get rich. So uh, what does a teenage boy who's obsessed with getting rich do? They apply to London School of Economics. And so I ended up here studying maths and economics. Um, I was very good at maths as a kid, I used to win a lot of competitions and, and I kind of figured that I'd turn up to Land School of Economics, be very good at maths in front of a lot of people and um, Goldman Sachs would turn up and, and give me a job. Turns out, what you actually have to do is apply to like 35 banks for internships and um, you have to, you have to do this CV, have you got any LSE students here? <coughs> You guys understand, right? Yeah. There are 35 banks, would you believe, at least there were back when I was here, 2005, 2006. You apply to all of them, and you do your seat and cover letter, and you put on there, well, I played oboe at the Royal Albert Hall, and uh, I founded a charity that does dirt biking through the Sahara Desert for kids, somehow. Um, you know, you put all that stuff in there, and then you get the job of Golden Sachs. Problem is, I actually didn't do none of that. Spent most of my teenage years fluffing pillows at DFS for £40 a day. And I didn't figure that would do very well on my CV and cover letter. So, so I gave up applying to um, I gave up applying to investment banks in my second year, which is a stressful year for all LSE students because it's when nobody goes to lectures and just applies for investment banks. <laughs> and um, that was when I realised that what, what the teachers told me in school, which is, oh, Gary, you're so smart, you're so good at maths, just keep being good at maths and you'll get a job was actually a lie. Um, and they tell you that when it's too late and you haven't even learnt oboe for a single year and you've got no chance at all. <laughs> but very, very fortunately, um, I, uh, uh, LSE is a weird place. Uh, there's a lot of people who, who are a bit weird. At least I experienced that when I was here. 
One day I was studying in the library and some guy who I'd never met before came up to me and said, are you Gary Stevenson? And I said, yes. And he said, City Bank has one trade a year through a card game. It's a maths game. You should go. I never saw that guy again. I went to the, I went to the competition, which is a few days later. And, um, and it was a maths game. And uh, true to form, I did win that maths game. And um, there, was a, there was a national final. I went to that. And, um, and I won that as well. It was in my second year of, of university. Um, and through that, I suddenly got a job as a trader for Citibank. Knowing absolutely nothing about trading or Citibank or anything like this. Uh, I started that job full time in 2008, which is when you're probably aware the financial crisis happened. Um, I started in June 2008. Some of my friends were working at Lehman. It's pretty much potluck what you get, and then they weren't working at Lehman anymore. Um, so my job was to bet on interest rates, which to summarise, Dreamy concisely. In 2008, all the interest rates went to zero, so we're basically betting on when will interest rates come up again, which is kind of a bet of when will interest rates, when will the economy recover, when will the economy normalise, basically. And um, what happened was in 2008, everyone says it will happen in 2009, and in 2009, everybody said it will happen in 2010, and 2010, everybody said it will normalise 2011, in 2011, everybody said 2012, and that continued to happen every single year until 2020 when everyone in the world finally agreed that interest rates would never go up again. So we're not, we're not good at this. We're not good at as a, as a society on um, understanding interest rates, which is great because if you want to get rich and everybody's wrong, then you've got a good chance. So I was sitting on the trading floor in sort of 2009, 2010, coming to 2011, thinking, well, this is interesting. Everybody's wrong about everything all the time. Why is that? And um, I was talking to some of the other sort of young traders who are all sort of fancy grads from NSC and Bocconi in Italy and Harvard and all these other fancy unis, Oxford, Pfizer's favour, Oxford. Um, and we were talking about, you know, why, why is there no recovery? And they were saying, oh, well, you know, there's something, some problem with the exogenous shocks in the economy and stagnant demand and things like that. And I decided I'd just go and ask people, because basically when interest rates are low, it's supposed to get people spending money, right? So I went and asked people, why don't you spend more money? If you've never done that, I'd recommend that you learn a lot. I went and asked people, why don't you spend more money? And they all said, oh, we don't spend any money because we don't have any more money, you idiot. Go back in there and get a better job. Um, and I didn't just, you know, accept that. Um, you know, I looked into it, I looked into it. So I started asking people about the financial situations. And, you know, I come from a poor background. And what I saw around me was my parents' generation who Large own property, I come from a poor background, I consider myself poor growing up, but my parents own their own property and they own their own property now. You know, a lot of people own property in that generation, and what I saw in my generation was people whose mums and dads own property and they themselves will never own property. And I thought, okay, well if this family used to own property and the future is not going to own property, maybe they're right and they don't have any more money because their long-term wealth trajectory is clearly downwards, right? They're losing their houses. And I went and told the other traders that these guys don't have any more money. And the trader said, oh, so well, you know, we'll do some fiscal stimulus, government will help out. So I got a call, call into a meeting early 2011, which you might remember is the year of the European sovereign debt crisis. Um, and the economist at Citibank, he basically laid out, this is the financial position of the government of Italy, of Spain, Portugal, Greece, Ireland, but, but not just those governments, also the UK, the US, Japan. In every case, what you saw was big kind of unsustainable deficits, growing debt piles, governments spending more than their incomes, losing their assets, going into debt. I came out of that meeting and I couldn't help but realise the similarity between 
my friends' families and like the big world governments, which is they used to own assets, now they don't. They spend more than their income. They're going further and further into debt. And the thing about that is it's, it's kind of impossible, right? It's, you know, if we all have some assets, we can't all lose our assets, right? And we can't all go into debt to nobody, right? These things, these assets exist and, and debt has to be owed to somebody. And I was sort of racking my brains like, well, who's got it? If everybody's losing their assets, everyone's going into debt. Who's got it? And then I sat down at my desk, sitting back trading for Canary Wharf, and I looked around to my left, to my right. And then I realised what was happening was wealth was flowing from ordinary families, from governments, and it was accumulating amongst the rich and the very rich. And um, that would obviously spiral, right? Because the, the rich and the very rich, they use their... The main thing they do with, with their income is they use it to buy more assets and they'll end it out. So they'll get richer, they'll use that to buy the rest of the assets, and then they'll get even richer and they'll use that to buy the rest of the assets. And I can see straight away that wealth will be sucked out of, of the middle class. And I mean, when I say middle class, I mean just the broad mass of people. Governments will be impoverished, the economy will never recover. And that was fantastic too, because the markets were still predicting a rapid recovery. So I started to bet very aggressively that there would never be an economic recovery. And by the end of that year, 2011, when I turned 25, I was Citibank's most profitable trader in the entire world. On the back of basically betting that the global economy would collapse forever. And everybody thought that was fantastic, including me. Millions of dollars. And they said, well done, do that again. And um, I sort of, I'll be honest, I did do it one more time. <laughs> but houses are very expensive nowadays. Um, you know, I, I did it once before, but you know, when I went into trading, I was very poor, and I, I think, you know, I did. When I was a kid, I thought I wanted to be rich. And then I, I became quite rich at quite a young age by, by betting that everyone I ever knew growing up, future was totally devastated. And then I suddenly realised, maybe what I really wanted was not to be rich, but just not to be poor. Because being poor is a bit shit, basically. It's not much fun. I've, I've been there. Um, and I started to think, well, if I'm right, and, and this keeps happening, the economy just gets worse and worse every year, year after year after year, what am I going to do with all this money? You know, I'm going to give it to my kids, I guess, if I ever get time out of the office to have some. Um, and then I'll tell my kids, I'm making this money by betting the global economy be terrible forever. And they'll say, well, did you do anything about it? And I'll say, well, I'm paying for your school, ain't I? You know? But eventually I decided that, you know, we, it's, it's, it is going to get worse. It is going to get, keep getting worse. You know, this is, this is not, I'm not a political person, you know. I'm a very good trader, a very good forecaster. If we allow inequality to keep getting worse and worse, that means more and more and more, more, more poverty, you know. It means less social mobility, which is obviously something I'm obsessed with. Um, but more importantly, it means just life's going to be terrible for 80, 90, 95% of people. And um, I quit that job and, and now I sort of work trying to basically explain to ordinary people on YouTube, I've got a TikTok, add me. Um, that, that, if you don't do anything about this economic problem, this inequality problem, everything will keep getting worse. And um, as I was reading Faisal's book, it, it made me think of the number one most common question by mine I get asked on my, my YouTube. So the YouTube is about saying, look, if we don't do anything about inequality, society will be devastated. 
Does anybody want to guess what the number one most popular question that I get is? How do I get rich? Is the number one question. The number one question. And that's funny, but it's so... So there's a movie that I, that I like, fancy French movie called La Haine. The opening scene is this, this little story, and the guy says, did you hear about the man who fell off of a skyscraper? He goes, I don't know, I don't know. He says it in French, I don't know, I do it in English. Um, he says, well, as he fell down to the top of the skyscraper, every time he passed the floor, he said, oh, so far, so good. So far, so good. And, um, when I sit here and some of these make millions of pounds betting on the devastation of our countries, our global economy, our societies. And I try and tell people we need to band together to stop this from happening, otherwise 90, 95, 97, 98% of us are going to be screwed. And they send me messages saying, how will I get rich? I can't help but think of this guy falling off a skyscraper and just every floor saying, how do I get rich? 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 But I can't criticise it, I understand it, because I've been there, and, and that's been me. And as I read Fyzer's book, that, that's sort of the, the question that was going through my mind, you know. We have, a, we have a system here which increasingly guarantees 70, 80, 90, 95, 97, 98% of people be in poverty. But we all just do this squid game thing where we think, well, I'll be the one. Yeah. I'll be the one. And, you know, mm. maybe you will. Maybe you will. But increasingly, probably, you won't. And the only way that we can stop that from happening is if we as a society, not just us in this room, you know, put down our spreadsheets for a bit and stop trying to get rich and, and start trying to stop the devastation of society. So hopefully you can talk a bit about that today. Thank you. Yes? Well, thank you so much. That was an amazing, I think, uh, quadruple act of, of <laughs> social mobility stories showing that we've got to think about things structurally rather than in terms of individual, individual stories. We have a bit less than half an hour for questions. We've got an online audience and we've got um, a full house here tonight. What I propose we do is we have um, two or three questions from the floor and then some, some comments um, from Pfizer, but also from all the panel, and then we, we go online. Have you got online questions? Okay. So mostly, mostly in person. So if you can raise your hands, and please, when, if, when you speak, can you introduce yourself and say where you're from and your name? Yeah, right here. This should be a mic. Thank you. Hello, uh, my name's Henrietta Lynch. Uh, I'm from London. I'm currently not working. Um, question which is uh, something to uh, Pfizer said uh, I think uh, refers to in her but why are we not doing why are we not reacting to inequality I'm just thinking of the context of the poll tax riots uh, that was a time when we had uh, much less inequality in this country so why do people get angry then but why are people not getting angry now. Thank you. Uh, any questions over there? Yes, one minute. Um, thank you so much learning. Um, what's the most influential argument against targeting um, to, for, for 
uh, more equity because the politicians seem to be obsessed with targeting support rather than universal basic income or universal services. Okay, great, thank you. And there's one there in the black t-shirt there, yeah. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Hi, uh, sorry, my name is Usman. Um, my question is, Pfizer, your book was absolutely phenomenal. Loved it. Um, it. It really resonated a lot with me in terms of my own story and thinking about my own family as well. Um, my question is, one of the solutions you talk about is the solidarity tax. And you say it's between, I believe it can raise 70 to 130 billion pounds. A uh, big question for me is obviously why is Labour not talking about that right now? Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Okay, three good questions. Should we bite it? Do you want to make some replies? Yeah, firstly, thank you. I mean, that was amazing. It was so amazing. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the reasons around why, um, Henrietta, thank you, um, why we don't see the change that we should see because inequality in this country has grown so much and actually people are angry there's multiple reasons about that i mean one of the reasons is because of the story of social mobility and because of the way that gives cover to politicians that don't want to do anything structurally but it's also because inequality has got so bad in this country that it's captured captured our state institutions so you know obviously we've heard a lot about covid contracts in this country and rich politicians giving their rich mates friends but you see that in all kinds of ways um, so I'm running to be um, an MP, I'm running that in, a, in an election, I guess, next year against Ian Duncan-Smith. Um, and I'm already being targeted with emails from like Booper and all of these, which is mad. Like already I'm getting those emails from private companies trying to lobby me. Come and meet us, let's go for lunch. What is going on there? And you know, there's too many people in power that can be easily captured by that. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons. I think when you talk about why people aren't reacting as well is because um, so often, and come down and door knock with me if you want to see how this plays out on the doorstep, people are angry. They say, you know, they are very angry with the Tories right now, especially, but they seem to think that, can it get, they seem to question whether it can get much better. I think the thing that's so sad is so many people are so despondent now. We had so many liars in charge, so many things that have been promised that haven't happened that people are, just feel like maybe this is as good as it gets. Maybe I just need to put up with this and hope that these societal problems aren't my problems anymore, which is why, of course, you're going to be obsessed with getting rich. Of course, you're going to be obsessed with that. Like, I just need to make sure my child gets out, right? And so it just raises the stake on that, stakes on that. And I think that's partly it. I think people, but you know, saying that, I think the strikes, I went out a lot with NEU, the National Education Union, in the last few months. And I think that has given me, um, a lot of hope because you can see that power again of people saying enough is enough um on um solidarity tax 
um, on the solidarity tax, yes, the argument I make in the book, and Gary and I have spoken about this before, about, of course we hear a lot about the need for wealth taxes. Meanwhile, around the world, even countries like Sweden and Norway have really struggled to put in place wealth taxes. In fact, Sweden had to cut its inheritance tax. And these are countries that we think of as like, you know, utopia, equality. Um, but they um, have struggled with this because wealth taxes, when people think that they're going to be rich one day or they could be rich one day, doesn't go down with like the wider public very well either. Um, and so the idea of a solidarity tax, which is something that was put in place um, when, Germ when Germany reunified, for instance, um, in Kenya when they were dealing with the AIDS um, epidemic, it was put in a place in lots of countries around during the world during COVID, is either a wealth tax or an income tax that has a very strong communication tool, which is essentially, we're in crisis, this is a moment to come together, this is why we need to take this action, and it's very transparent about where the money's going. So it's saying, so one of the things I argue for in the book is that we need a generational solidarity tax in this moment because of the climate crisis, because of what's happened in the housing market and the rest of it. And that is the thing that's different. In a way, it, it could create the amount money, as much money as a wealth tax, but it's the story that counts. And when I've seen that play out, I've been working with governments around the world, around the, world the last couple of years, you know, it's really powerful to have that, have that communication. And it puts pressure on the rich not to just hide their money somewhere else. It's something that people can buy into. And then very quickly on the powerful arguments for um, universal versus targeted. I mean, um, that's an argument, in a way, it's like, it's less policymakers and more people because people kind of, I think people don't understand the idea that if all of us are putting in, we all feel part of something. They often think that's gonna to be too expensive. So I think that there's an argument to be made about um, how we don't demonize some people or cut them out and say this group in particular. You know, it's maybe things like the analogy of the free school meals line, right? Like that used to happen at my school and you could knew exactly who it was that was getting free school meals. And it was really embarrassing for them. Whereas if it was just free school meals for everyone, then it's like, you know, something that is normalized and that no one is penalized or looked at like they're different or judged for having that. Um, but yeah, I agree that universal measures are, are really important. Do you want to add anything, Gary? Um, just on the point, I, I remember being in um, Spain doing a story about young people in Spain just after the, um, the economic crash and asking, um, a kind of quite experienced um, blogger, influencer, like, what, why aren't people out in the streets? And he said, well, there's lots of oil on the floor and just waiting for a spark. And sure enough, two, two weeks later, the indignados were, were born. And I mean, I would, I would um, support what Faz is saying in terms of, if you, if you look at the strikes as an example, uh, but if you go broader than that in our imagination and we look at Black Lives Matter, uh, women's marches, that there is a, a greater spirit of resistance than there has been for a while. And it's infectious, I think, when people see one group of people standing up. Um, you know, that way in which Mick Lynch became this kind of folk hero because he found this way to deal with it insane and inane questions that were being put to him by people from my former profession. Um, and, and I think if we go back to Occupy Wall Street as a framing, that what we, 
what we have been able to do is clear a lot of political space. So there is a lot politically, ideologically, a lot of people think this is terrible, this is kind of, that something has to change. But what we haven't been able to do, I would put Corbyn in that list as well, actually, of people thinking we just, we need something different. What we haven't been able to do successfully is build on that political space. And, and so we have a, I feel that we're in a situation where people are more aware and actually more angry, more fighty, better organised, and yet we're still going backwards, um, uh, which is obviously contradictory and I don't think can hold. Um, so I'm going to pick up on the point about why people aren't getting angry and then link it to universalism. So I used to work on poverty and um, some charities did some research on kind of people's beliefs about what could change and kind of the kind of policies that they would support. And basically there's just a lot of fatalism. People just didn't believe that things could be better, that our society could be better in any kind of ambitious way. And so people would only support incremental change because it was the only thing they believed was actually plausible. And so then when we bring that to concepts of say universalism, people don't believe it's achievable. Like Pfizer said they think it will be too expensive, but it's also ideological. We have a government that doesn't believe ideologically in universalism. So we don't, if we're not having that push um, from the public, and then we have a government that doesn't believe ideologically in universalism, then we end up with these kind of small targeted policies that in the longer term actually cost more, bring about stigma and shame. And yeah, what we actually need to do is have a convincing vision that things can be better and that things can change, but obviously that's really, really hard to do. But yeah, we're not in a, we're not a very optimistic place and people rightly yeah, feel despondent and, yeah, kind of worn down. And so it's kind of on all of us to try and make a convincing argument um, that things could change and could be better. So, on why people are not angry, I think there's a degree to which people just don't know, in the sense that, so at the beginning of COVID, right, I put a video saying COVID is going to cause an unbelievably huge increase in inequality and an unbelievably massive accumulation of cash by the rich, um, which really any economist who did the analysis would have been able to see. Because we knew the government was going to give an enormous amount of money out, right? The amount of money the UK government has given out since the beginning of COVID is £750 billion, which is £15,000 for every adult in the country. So if you do not have £15,000 cash more now than you did three years ago, someone else has got your £15,000, right? And, and as an inequality economist, I wanted to know who's got it. I wanted to know who's got it. And I did the analysis, and you could very quickly see, once you did it, this is going to go almost all of it to the richest people in the country. If that goes to the top 10%, just as an assumption, that means the richest 5 million adults in the country getting 150 grand cash each. And I put a video saying, when lockdown finishes, what you'll see is enormous increase in inequality, enormous increase in house prices, enormous increase in rents, enormous cost of living crisis, and enormous inflationary crisis. But, you know, in the first year of COVID, the average billionaire increased the wealth by over 600 million pounds. The average US billionaire more than doubled their wealth in one year in the first year of COVID, right? It's that never have we seen such a rapid increase in inequality as in the last three years. And just, just think about this, right? Imagine you massively increased inequality during a period of time when the economy was literally closed 
What do you think would happen to broad living standards on the reopen? Of course they're going to collapse, but nobody spoke about it, right? Nobody spoke because economists don't look at inequality in, in general, you know. Present company accepted, of course. No, but um, that's true. I mean, with inequality, I was told when I started doing inequality work just before the crash, and the senior economists in the department said, Pfizer, I don't know why you have to talk about inequality. If you want to be taken seriously as an economist, work on growth. If you're going to be a nice person, work on poverty. And that's what it was, yeah. Yeah, so economists don't look at it, and I think it connects to the other questions. You know, why, why do government policies not tend to target general inequality? It's because there's not enough broad understanding and broad acceptance that inequality is, is connected to living standards, broad living standards. And so much of what I do is trying to explain to people, listen, if you don't deal with this inequality, it is going to devastate societal living standards. And I use a lot the, the metaphor that it's a cancer. You know, if, if it's not treated, it will grow and grow and it will devastate living standards. But our economies treat it like it's a cold. They just say, oh, don't worry, it's a recession, just wait and it will get better. And it's the same, it's the same reason why Labour don't support it, because, you know, I speak to people in Labour and they say, well, we don't think the public will support it. They don't think it's a vote winner. So I see a lot of my job to explain to people, if you don't deal with this, it's, it's going to damage living, it's going to devastate living standards. And it, it's not, if people knew, what, what will happen here, which is not that this is a temporary problem that will get better, but this is a permanent problem that will get progressively worse and worse, they would not accept it and they would demand action, but people don't understand that. So, you know, I would encourage you to, to understand that and to spread it, if you, if you agree. But I, I, can I just add one, uh, one thing? Sorry to, you know, come in again. But there's a symbiotic relationship, isn't there, between the politics of this situation and the understanding. Because in the absence of any, and this goes to the, um, the second question, in the absence of any leadership, then how would people know? Mm -hmm. And so there is a real crisis of political vision mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, to, to, for someone to create that picture mm -hmm. and to say, look, this is, this is where we are. And that, unfortunately, takes courage. Yeah. It's not that they don't know. Mm. It's not that they're stupid. It's that they, they, you know, it's like if Martin Luther King went to the top of the Lincoln Memorial and said, I have a 10 point plan rather than I have a dream. Like, that, yeah. as, sooner or later, somebody's got to say that this is wrong and this is how you put it right and this is why it's wrong and this is why it's going to get worse. And when people don't have the courage to do that, then we all lose. Yeah. And I, I feel that that is it's not just, it, of course, they look at people and they say, well, they won't buy it. But like, well, they're not selling it. Yeah. Yeah. So where would they buy it from? I think, I think if we can, yeah. some more questions. And, I can see some hands going up. There's more on the side there. And the pink jacket that says, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, my name's Carmen Playfair. I'm an NHS physician for 40 years and a lawyer. And one of the things I would like to ask when you talked about it, that was Kimberly talking about what can we do about it, challenging the toxic narratives. Why um, don't we link the, the ignorance of people in Britain? I'm Dutch and I, I have lived here for 40 years so I can see the differences. The right-wing media, the narratives of the right-wing media persistently over the years, showing contempt for the hard-working middle classes and the poor in this country. And um, people like the chief economist at the, the UK Central Bank who said, just get used to it. You all need to just understand that you're poor. When he fails to see how the Bank of England has caused that greedflation over the last 
12, 13 years. So uh, wh why don't we speak about and how do we attack that right-wing media that perpetuates that ignorance in people and what, 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 what the causes are of inequality and what to do about it? Thank you. Thank you. And there's one at the back. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Richard. I work for the government. Um, <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. Um, my question actually links with um, the previous commentator. So you guys are all incredibly accomplished and you've beaten the odds for better or worse. Um, and you have this great platform here. Uh, and we have a media system which um, accelerates the inequality of that platforming and of, of your voices. And so, whether right-wing or left-wing, when you have that system, what approaches should you and all of us be taking to elevate the regular voice, the, you know, just the normal people? Cheers. Thank you. And anyone over here? Okay. Back there, back to back. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was just wondering what with like recent stitch-ups that we see within the parties, such as with like Mayor Driscoll and with the Shadow Health Secretary campaigning for like essentially the further privatisation of the NHS. Um, this is primarily directed at the prospective parliamentary candidate. Thanks. <laughs> if you still <laughs> think the future, right now. <laughs> if you still think the future of the left lies within the Labour Party. <laughs> slightly, slightly off, off, off the. I think I know where you're coming from. Um, do you want to reply to any of those, Pfizer? Um, yeah, let me start with that one first. Thank you for that very tricky question. Um, listen, we have we live in a situation whereby you know essentially there's really two parties that are ever going to be in power in this country. Um, maybe there's some coalition, but you know the leading party will either be Conservative or Labour. And um, yeah, I think it's having, and I said this recently in an interview, having any kind of wholesale faith in any party is a bad idea because it always requires pressure from the outside. No one's just gonna do the right thing internally. But what I would say is that the Labour Party gives us a better chance of seeing some of these things than the current party that we, we have. And um, people keep asking me as well whether I whether I can make, you know, whether we can make more difference from the outside. It just happens to be for the, you know, and thank you, there's members here from the local Labour Party that supported me and managed to push me through. And, you know, it was not easy. And yeah, I can't even talk about it. But, um, you know, and so I've been given this opportunity. So it's absolutely on me to use my voice and to say these things and to push my book out, somehow not get expelled from the party and, um, you know, and keep doing that. And so you've got to put pressure on people like me that can say these things, that's willing to say these things, because, um, yeah, I, I agree, it's, it's an imperfect situation right now, but we certainly need to get rid of the Conservatives after 13 years of just ruining this country. Yeah, on the media, I mean, I think you're probably best place to talk about media. One thing I would say is that, yeah, I was let into those places. I was let into those spaces. And it was so hostile. <laughs> you 
It was horrific. When I stopped doing media, when I moved to New York for 18 months or so, I, when I stopped doing media, my mental health immediately got a lot better. And it's because you go into these studios, you're often the only person from the left, the only person, often the only woman from a working class background. They look at you, they don't talk, sometimes they don't even talk to you because they're talking about their mates or what private school they're sending their kids. For real, I talk about it in the book. Some of the stuff that I heard in the green rooms, you know, I would talk to the people like working in the studios, they were my friends. Um, and it's, yeah, they sometimes give us a little bit of space, but they make it really, really difficult for you. And one of the points in the book is that, you know, yeah, you know, you, you can beat the odds, but it comes at a cost. Um, and why should we, why should it be a thousand times more difficult for me to become an MP than it was for David Cameron and Boris Johnson? Right? Why should anyone be set up with those odds in the first place? So I think, you know, I'll let Gary talk about what we can do in the media. I feel like you're a better place to do that. And Gary, you're also doing your own thing, which I think is a, is a really important thing. Yeah. I mean, I, my feeling about, about the, the media is that um, it's going to be there. It's going to be there, you know, wh whether we like it, which we don't. Uh, or not, and that kind of if we if we look at 2017 and 2019 as those two elections, we had the same media. 2017, the Labour vote went up, the Tory vote went down, a range of good things happened, and that really showed that you can <laughs> you can sell it, but that don't mean people are going to wear it, right? And so the, there are limits to the power of the media. And I, and I would connect this to the question about Labour, really, that I think that the kind of the answer to the toxic media, we actually, have, I think that Mick Lynch has, in his practice, provided one of the answers to the toxic media, is get organised, get active, and fight. That is possible to, it is possible to change narratives. We're not going to change the media as such, but we can provide alternative narratives. And, um, but that will take action. And similarly, I think in some ways to, um, I will speak for myself here and nobody else on the panel, I'm very frustrated with the leadership of the Labour Party right now. Uh, but actually, I've been frustrated with the leadership of the Labour Party for most of my life, to be honest. <laughs> and, and the, and I, and I will generally vote Labour because even on their worst day, they're better than the Tories on their best. It is telling that an awful lot of the things that I talked about in my talk, grants and so on, they went under a Labour government, they did. And I can't expect the Labour Party to organise the left opposition to itself. That's not reasonable. And so they will do. This is true whether you like them or whether you don't. It was a question I put to John McDonnell when he was um, uh, Shadow Chancellor, was, you know, if you win, we will have to organise against you. They will do what they are made to do. And so I do feel that ultimately, rather than complaining and being disappointed or not in them, we have to look to what we are going to do to make them do what we want them to do. Because once they get elected, Booper will be in. And, and um, um, you know, GSK and all the multinationals will be in. And for us to get what we want, they have to be more scared of us than they are of them. And Booper aren't saying, why won't you do more for us? 
They're getting in there and they're saying, if you don't do this, this will happen. We can do that. And actually that is where our, that is where our power lies. And I think what was interesting about the 2017 election, obviously it couldn't be replicated in 2019, was that for a moment, we stopped worrying about what the media was saying. Corbyn didn't change between 2017 2019. He was the same IRA-loving like, lunatic who was going to take your paycheck and, you know, feed it to the Palestinians or whatever <laughs> mental, mental thing that they were saying. It was exactly the same person. But in 2017, we stopped, we stopped caring what they, they were saying and we cared much more about what we were doing. And that manifesto was way more powerful than any crap that they could play out. So um, I'm a Labour councillor, so I'm also uh, limited in what I can say about the Labour Party on the left, because I really don't want to get disciplinary. Um, but I guess what I can say is why I'm a member of the Labour Party and why I'm a Labour councillor, um, which is that when I knock on people's doors, um, I represent like a high deprivation, low income area. I people uh, they're suffering in a way that I is. Yeah, not like anything I've seen and definitely doesn't, isn't reminiscent of what I grew up in. It's much, much worse. People are living with rats, they're living with damp, they've got cockroaches, they're overcrowded, um, mental health issues, their children are struggling. And whatever my frustrations and disappointments with the Labour Party are, the one thing I do know is that even the worst version of Labour is going to make those people's lives better. And that is what keeps me going, it's what keeps me in the party, and it's why, you know, if Labour does win, I'll be in the streets, I'll be drinking Prosecco, like, <laughs> celebrating. I've had Tory rule the entirety of the time that I've been able to vote in a general election. My first election was 2010, I did a proxy, and it's been disappointment after disappointment for me since then. Um, so I will be, I'll be celebrating, but it's, as Gary said, then, you know, maybe, maybe have a week of rest, you know, let's enjoy it. But then after that, there has to be pressure from the ground. We need people to be dragging us, to be pushing us, to be organizing, to make the party the best version that it can be. And that's for the people who are outside of the party to be doing. So, you know, there's lots of groups, you know, organizing on lots of different issues, locally, nationally, that people can join. And so I would encourage people to do that. Um, and to push us and to make our lives difficult um, if we do win. Um, in terms of uh, narrative, so uh, like Pfizer, I used to do a lot of media work, so I used to work at the Running Me Trust, and one of the reasons that I decided to leave is because I didn't want to talk about race and racism in the media anymore. At least I knew that I needed to have a rest from doing that kind of work, especially after George Floyd was murdered, you know, my phone was blowing up with outlets that would never cover anything that I had researched before. You know, like um, Radio 4 Today, Calling, Newsnight, suddenly interested in race and inequality. Um, I was told by someone at Politics Live that I would never get to go on there because I worked on a niche issue, um, race and racism. Um, and so I would never, they would never book me because they're like, that's a niche issue, we're never gonna cover that. You will never be on that panel. Um, and so this is the media environment that we're working in, and it's also extremely draining work to be pitted against with some like terrible framing, you know, are um, Easter eggs racist, um, you know, are Gollywood's racist, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so this is the media environment that we're working within. Um, 
And it's also really hard to, you can only get covered in kind of left-leaning outlets. So I've only ever written for The Guardian and The Independent and The Eye Paper. And so to get our message outside of certain audiences with the media as it is, is quite difficult. Um, and so I'd encourage people to support more grassroots um, left-wing media outlets. And I think we need to think about different ways to communicate our message outside of the media environment, um, whether that's through organizing in your community, um, or if you have power, maybe through culture, maybe through television, through other means. But we can't rely on the kind of broadsheet landscape that we have now um, to get our message across because it's not going to work for us. It's not made for us. Okay. On the subject of grass-wing, left-wing media outlets. <laughs> um, yeah, glad to get a question on, on media because um, I basically I'm, I run basically a, a small media channel talking about inequality, um, and I avoided the media for a long time. I, I quit banking in 2014, and one of the first things I did was actually I was introduced to Pfizer. We went out for a dinner, and I said, look, you know. I've got this great story, you know, I worked for a bank, it was so terrible for me. And I was like, all right, fantastic, so what are you going to do about it? I remember surprising level of directness there, and I thought, oh, good question. I've really considered that. Um, and I tried to do so many things before I went into media, because I didn't want to go into media and use my face. But eventually I sort of thought, this is the only way that it's going to work. And the first thing I did was I wrote articles, and I wrote an article for The Guardian, I think, March or May 2020. And that gave me a lot of exposure. I started writing a lot of articles, but I started to feel like, who reads economic cycles in The Guardian? Not the people who are really being hurt by this issue. And I, and I decided, well, I'm going to go to YouTube and start making videos. And I've been doing that for the last couple of years. And the amount of growth that it's got with no advertising, no funding, nothing, just me and my mate who is a dentist filming in my local park, right? I get recognized every time I go out on the back of this. And when I see that, what I see is, yes, the media is horrendously terrible. And that is an amazing opportunity because nobody's explaining what's happening. When I watch economic news, I don't understand. And I've got two economics degrees, right? The level of information people are getting is it's in the toilet. It's unbelievably bad. So if we can get just a little bit of funding together to get decent information to people saying, listen, it's not that complicated. If you allow inequality to grow absolutely at a massive pace, of course your, your lives will be damaged. And if we can put that message out there, I know from what I've seen, the massive support I've got for my channel with no funding, people want to hear the truth, people want to understand. So there's a massive opportunity with regards to the media. And I think we can really, if we get a little bit of organisation behind giving people sensible, understandable economic messages, I think we can put a massive movement behind it, personally. I just want to make one comment and then pass it over to Pfizer for the final, final word, really. Uh, but just to say, actually, if you are fired up, and I think you all are fired up by what you've heard tonight, and you really want to think about how to take this forward, and obviously even campaign for Pfizer. But, but uh, we also are having an event at the LSE because we are collaborating with the Running Me Trust in a, in a summit, um, a day-long conference on July the 1st, which is two weeks away. Uh, which we, and Running Me Trust, as you know, is, is the UK's leading race, race equality think tank. Uh, Kim was talking about her work there. And we have a whole day devoted to exploring these issues in more depth, including a focus around hostile environment for migrants, on the criminal justice issues and a theme which I'm involved with around uh, the racial wealth divide and the cost of living crisis, which is very much linked in. So please do come along. There's going to be lots of campaigning groups there as well. So if, if you want to think about taking that forward, then please do take advantage of that. I mean, like a few final uh, housekeeping things, but before that, Pfizer, you should say a few words. Yeah, just to say thank you. Um, I think it's been an amazing session and totally, I think, you know, 
I hope that people can read the book and get Gary's book, get Kim's book. Join Gary, what's your YouTube channel? Subscribe to Gary's Economics. Yeah, <laughs> do that. Get on your phone now and do it. Um, these are incredible people. Um, and when I was thinking about who I wanted to be with today, these are the, literally the first names that came to my mind, including Mike's. And there's so much that we can gain from, from their knowledge. Um, but, you know, just to say in terms of yes, a, bit, a little bit of a plea, um, to come and support me. It's really difficult for various reasons and I am running against Ian Duncan Smith who was the architect of so many cruel welfare reforms which my mum was one of the people that really suffered from those. Um, and yeah, I think just to say on the kind of the toxic narratives bit which is something I've been working on for some years is that it starts with you as well. Like if you can go out and counter these things in your own life and have these conversations, people always say like, don't talk about politics and religion at the, at the dinner table. Please talk about politics. Please talk about these economic and social issues. We have to counter it in our own lives and in the wider debate as well. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.